This is Harry Carey with Jack Buck and Jerry Gross from the beautiful new Bush Memorial Stadium. And boy, I tell you, this is some sight. The crowd still is coming in. The bleacher area on center field almost filled. And the indication is that it's going to be a fine Friday night crowd here at the Polo Grounds. We're underway in the first of a twilight doubleheader at Tiger Stadium. Greetings, baseball fans. This is Mel Allen greeting you from Yankee Stadium in New York City. The Eppenham Schaefer Brewing Company, very happy to be pouring it to you from Ebbets Field tonight. And there should be a humdinger. Good afternoon, everybody. This is Al Helfer with Art Gleason bringing you Mutual's Game of the Day from Sunny Shy Park in the city of Philadelphia. Just the start of things. All full of a comfortable chair. If you want to take your shoes off, go ahead. Wiggle your toes, and we hope you'll have a cold shape or two throughout the evening. Rick Riz has been calling Seattle Mariners baseball games since 1983. Aside from a three-year stopover in Detroit, he has been synonymous with Seattle baseball for the past 40 years. As one of baseball's great storytellers, I can't wait to hear about his experiences at some of the great old lost ballparks over the past four decades. Rick Riz, welcome to the Lost Ballparks podcast. Hey, good morning, Mike. How are you? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm doing fine, thank you. Thanks for making time to be with us today. You're welcome. You grew up on the south side of Chicago. What was your first Major League Baseball game? Did that Was that a Comiskey? Yeah, uh, yeah. I grew up on the south side of Chicago, and I was both a Cub fan and a, and a White Sox fan because uh, I'd come home from school. I was born in 53, so in 1959, the White Sox went to the World Series that year against the Los Angeles Dodgers, who had been in Los Angeles for a few years. But I'd come home during the afternoon. My mother was the biggest Cub fan in the world. And I remember as I was got a little bit older, she had this little black and white TV set in the kitchen. She'd be cooking all day. She was the greatest uh, cook of the world, greatest mom in the world, that homemade spaghetti sauce, homemade pasta. But she'd be watching the Cubs. She loved Ernie Banks, Billy Williams, and Ron Santo. So I'd watch the games with her. There's a high fly, deep to left. Miller and Wynn, both back, back, back. And then there were times where I'd go downstairs and and turn on the TV, turn down the sound and pretend I was Jack Brickhouse. And that's how I got started in baseball. And when I was 12 years old, I wrote him a letter and he wrote me back. And that's how my interest in broadcasting started. But at night, my dad would come home and uh, we'd watch the, the White Sox on TV or listen to the radio. And my hero growing up was a little shortstop by the name of Louis Aparicio. Louis Aparicio. And a swing and a fly ball down the right field corner. Fair foul. It's a fair ball. Here's the throw into the infield. Here's Phillips coming to the plate. Here's the throw in. And he scores. Scores. Sox lead one to nothing. You know, growing up on the South Side, I had the best of both worlds. I had the Cubs during the day because they didn't have lights until 1988 you know, at Wrigley Field. And then, uh, you know, growing up on the South Side, my dad could easily take us to Comiskey Park, which he did. Uh, my brother and I, I saw my first game in 1959. We were playing the Yankees and uh, we got there a little bit late. You know, my dad, there was a lot of traffic because it was the Yankees and I wanted to see my first baseball game. And uh, my dad said, oh man, it's kind of crowded. I don't know if we're going to find a parking spot. We'll, we can come back next week. Cleveland's playing or somebody. I said, no, dad, I want to go. We're here. You know, <laughs> yeah. I want to see Louis Aparicio, man. I want to see the Yankees. I want to see the White Sox. So I'll never forget it, Mike. Uh, we, we got finally parked, finally got in the ballpark and we came up the first base entrance way by the visiting dugout. And uh, I walked up and I never saw anything so vibrantly green in all my life, that green grass. It was just exploded in front of me. 
And uh, there was Louis Aparicio out there at shortstop and Nellie Fox at second, Ted Kluzewski at first. I think Billy Goodman was at third, Sherm Lawler catching. Early win was pitching, or Billy Pierce. And uh, I, I froze. I couldn't move. And my dad and my brother were walking down the first baseline because our seats were up at the bleachers in right field. And uh, I saw this guy kneeling on a bat in the on-deck circle. And he had number seven on his back, and it was Mickey Mantle. Wow. And I go, these guys are alive. They're real because they were only a picture on a baseball card and the top baseball card that I had, you know, as a kid. And I remember I, I couldn't move. And my dad's yelling, Ricky, come on, let's go. We got to get our seats. And so I finally got to our seat. And it was just the most one of the most amazing days of my life. You mentioned that you wrote a letter to Jack Brickhouse, who was the announcer for the Cubs at the time. Did, and so yeah. he responded to you, right? He did. He did. I wrote him when I was 12 years old. Finally. You know, I had the guts to write him a letter and I wanted to be in the next Louis Aparicio as a kid. You know, like all kids, we had a sandlot behind my house. That's another story. Ever see the movie Sandlot? Of course you did. And millions yeah. of other people. That was a story of my life. Growing up on Carpenter Street on the south side of Chicago in Canyon Park, Illinois, me and my buddies would play baseball all day long out there in the sandlot. I, I also was fascinated by listening to the games on the radio. And by listening to Jack Brickhouse on the radio and on television. Ladies and gentlemen, this ball game now moves into the Cub half of the ninth inning. Any old kind of a run wins it for the Chicago Cubs. Cincinnati nothing, the Chicago Cubs nothing. There's Ron Sato, who has the big responsibility now of leading off in the inning for the Chicago Cubs. So I wrote him a letter when I was 12 years old. I, I wrote him, I said, dear Mr. Brickhouse, I'd love to be a major league broadcaster just like you. How do I do it? And he wrote me back a letter and he told me what you would tell any 12 year old kid at the time, you know, work hard and do well in school, believe in yourself, eat your vegetables. But I made that one up. But uh, <laughs> I had this letter and it was like my holy grail for, for many, many years. And I don't know where it's at right now after all the moves I made, you know, in the minor leagues and in major league baseball, but he took the time to write me back. So anyway, I went to college, Southern Illinois University. I walked on, made the baseball team there, and but then I got into broadcasting and uh, went, got a job in the minor leagues. Two days after I graduated from school, spent eight years in the minor leagues broadcasting in Alexander, Louisiana, uh, Amarillo, Texas, Memphis, Tennessee for three years, uh, Columbus, Ohio for two years with the Yankees AAA Farm Club. Then I made it to Seattle thanks to Dave Niehaus and the Mariners in 1983. And uh, my first year in the big leagues, Dave and I and Kevin Kremen, our producer engineer, we drive out to Mesa to go play the Cubs. And uh, so we go out there, we get there, of course, early. Not too many people in the ballpark. And we're setting up the equipment. And lo and behold, who was at the ballpark was Jack Brickhouse. 1983 had been retired. He had been retired for two years, but he happened to be at the ballpark. He was down there at spring training. And Dave goes, there's your hero. Go talk to him. He was down by behind home plate signing autographs. I said, oh, no, I don't want to bother him. Don't want to bother him. But eventually he worked his way up to the press box. And Dave goes, go talk to him. So I went up to him. I said, Mr. Brickhouse, you don't remember this, but when I was 12 years old, here I am 29 now in the first year of the big leagues in 1983, I said, I wrote you a letter when I was 12 years old and you took the time to write me back. And I just wanted to tell you how much I appreciated that, what an impact that made on my life, how inspirational it was. And I just wanted to thank you. And he said, oh, really? Well, what are you doing? I said, well, because of you, I'm the new announcer for the Seattle Mariners. I'm going to do today's game between the Mariners and the Cubs here at spring training. He said, really? I wrote you a letter. I said, yes, you did. I said, thank you very much. When I was 12 years old, he gave me a big hug. Wow. So I finally got a chance to meet my hero. Not just a great moment, but also a, a great example of 
just a kind human being and, and the impact that, that a simple letter or a phone call can right. have on someone's life. And I mean, that had a lifelong impact on you. Oh, no doubt about it. No doubt about it. I said, this is what I want to do. You know, I remember thinking I could play, you know, in high school and in college, I played three years on the JV team, but then reality set in, you know, I'm taking a look at sliders and guys that throw 90 plus miles an hour. And, uh, but the broadcasting I loved, I just loved to do it because it brought back memories of a kid down in my basement, you know, turning down the sound on the television and doing those cup games, you know, in my basement, my mother would be going, Ricky, what are you doing? I said, mom, I'm busy. Ernie Banks is up there with the bases loaded, you know, but, uh, and then, I did a lot of broadcasting while I was in, in college, and that just stoked the fires. And, uh, you know, from there, working in the minor leagues and finding out what the minor leagues was like, it was really tough because broadcasting was about seventh on my list of things to do. I was the assistant GM in the minor leagues. I had to sell the advertising, the outfield fence signs, the program ads, season tickets, special nights, you name it, radio advertising. And uh, and I was on the grounds crew, of course. I was the PR guy. I was the traveling secretary. Oh, <laughs> then have, I broadcast some baseball. And you might have to wash a uniform <laughs> a time or two. Oh, I did that. That was my first job in baseball, as a matter of fact, Mike. My good buddy, John Dietrich, we had gone to college together. And he got a job as the uh, general manager of the Padres AA Farm Club in Alexandria, Louisiana. Uh, he graduated a year before I did. And then when I graduated, he called me up. I got home. After covering a baseball tournament, I just graduated, just got home to Chicago, and he called me up and he said, what are you doing? I said, well, I'm going to look for a job. And he said, why don't you come down here to Louisiana? I, he said, I'm the GM of the Padres AA Farm Club. I need a clubhouse guy. I said, what's that? He said, I need somebody <laughs> to wash uniforms, shine the shoes of the visiting players, and I'll let you do three innings of play-by-play. I said, you know what? I'll, I'll try out. You know, I'll see what it's like. Uh, I'll see I want to find out what minor league baseball is like. I said, let me spend two days with my folks and I'll drive down to Louisiana. So I packed everything I owned in my 1971 Ford Maverick, which wasn't much. That was 48 years ago. Moved the <laughs> franchise from Alexandria, Louisiana to Amarillo, Texas, and then on to Memphis, like I said, in Columbus, and now 40 years in the big leagues. You know what's amazing is uh, some of those minor league ballparks were so cozy. I mean, you were with the Memphis Chicks, so you were at Tim McCarver Stadium. Yeah, we, you know, we were up a little ways because I remember and when it rained, I had to run down to the field and get on the ground screw and put the tarp on the field, go back, run up through the bleachers <laughs> to the stadium to get to the press box, soaking wet and muddy and having to do a ball game eventually. Talk about paying dues. Yeah, that's what you <laughs> had to do in the minor leagues, you know, and, and all for a glorious sum of $500 a month. My first job at Alexandria made $200 a month. Oh, my gosh. And I would eat the leftover hot dogs in the concession stands and uh, to survive. And that's why it's, I have a hard time eating a hot dog today. But anyway, you don't know what you're going through at the time you're going through it. You just do it. You know, it's just a bunch of guys. I lived with two of the players in Alexandria when I was the clubhouse guy and part-time play-by-play guy. I remember washing uniforms for Bruce Suter and Jack Clark and Mitchell Page and guys like that uh, when they would come in with the uh, Midland Cubs, the Arkansas Travelers, uh, the Shreveport Captains, and uh, the El Paso Diablos. But that's how I got my start in baseball. I wouldn't change a thing. I would not change a thing. You paid your dues and you had a dream. And after eight years in the minor leagues, you got the calls, you said, to the yeah. Mariners in, in 1983. Do you, do you remember the first time you did a game at the Kingdom? I want to hear your thoughts and impressions on the Kingdom. Oh, I'll never forget that as long as I live. I, first of all, I didn't even know where Seattle was. 
you know, up until the time where, you know, they had the pilots there for one year and then they left and became the Mariners in 1977. But yeah, I'll never forget my first game of the big leagues, just like a player, you know, that would never forget their first hit, first game. I was just amazed by what I saw at the time. It was like the Taj Mahal, but it really wasn't a great ballpark. You know, it was used for uh, the Seahawks. The Sonics would play some basketball games there, conventions. They had motocross. They had monster truck, you know, shows and things like that. And then it was also a baseball stadium as well. But to me, it was amazing because now I'm in the big leagues for the very first time. Here comes opening day, and it was against the New York Yankees. Get ready to play hardball in the kingdom. Take me to the ballgame. I want to see the ants. And after eight years in the minor leagues, here I am, the new announcer, along with Dave Niehaus, one of the greatest announcers in the history of the game of baseball. Mm -hmm. I owe him so much. And the Mariners opened up that year, 1983, against the New York Yankees. And it was Gaylord Perry against Ron Guidry. And I go, you know what, Ricky? You're not in the minor leagues anymore. You know, this is Gaylord (laughs) Perry. He's going to be a future Hall of Famer. And Ron Guidry at the time was Louisiana Lightning with the Yankees, one of the greatest pitchers in the American League at the time. The Mariners won that first game, I think it was five to four. Richie Zisk hit a home run. I did the third inning, the sixth, the seventh. Richie hit a home run in the third because Dave Niehaus said, hey, you got to call the first home run of the year. I went, oh, wow, that's cool. It was just so much fun and experience that, uh, of course, I'll never forget. In 83, did they have the, uh, I forget the name of the ship, the SS? uh... USS Mariner. It was a little tugboat. And what they originally used it for was to bring in the guys from the bullpen. The bullpens weren't played down the left and right field lines of the kingdom. And the guys were supposed to get on the USS Mariner. And this guy was to drive the guys down the line, you know, to come into the ball games. Not many guys wanted to, you know, take the ride on USS Mariner. One guy did, Mike Stanton, I think. Otherwise, it was just a waste of time. But USS Mariner would come down the line anyway. But uh, since nobody was using it, then the USS Mariner... They thought, you know, this would be a good idea. They put it behind the center field wall at the Kingdome and put it on this hydraulic lift. And um, they put a little cannon on it. And it was manned by a, a serviceman from the Navy, from Bremerton. And anytime a Mariner would hit a home run, the USS Mariner would come up high above the center field wall, shoot off the cannon, then go back down. And now has made the club and is going to play in center field for them. Whoops, that one to left field. First swing is deep. Kittle back. Goodbye, home run! His first swing at the kingdom. And one game, the guy who was on the ship who ran the hydraulic system, you know, had it up and he was watching the game. And he was watching the game with binoculars. We're playing the Baltimore Orioles. And Frank Robinson was the manager of the Orioles at the time. And he called timeout and he was walking out towards center field. And Dave was going, wonder what Frank's, you know, got a problem with. Yeah. And he's walking farther out towards center field. And normally the ship goes down. It's supposed to disappear. But it was up during the game, and the guy had binoculars. And I said, Dave, I'll tell you what. I think, uh, Frank, I think he has a problem with the guy thinking that our guy out there is stealing signs. Oh, my gosh. So sure enough, Frank goes out there, talks to second base umpire, and he's pointing at the guy on the on the USS Mariner. And finally, the guy went down, you know, <laughs> behind the wall like he was supposed to. I could just picture him just lowering slowly down. <laughs> and just disappearing. I go, that's what it was about. Frank thought the sailor out there 
it would pop off the cannon for a home run was stealing signs and uh, the game continued. But yeah, we had the USS Mariner there. By the way, I love Rick having broadcasters on this podcast because I don't think there's anybody better to describe the idiosyncrasies of these old ballparks. And it, I mean, it's been your job to describe these places that many of your listeners might have never had the chance to visit. So I'd love to run through a few that you broadcast from, particularly in the 80s, and just to hear your impressions and any story that maybe jumps to mind, starting with Municipal Stadium in Cleveland. Oh, that thing was huge. I'll never forget the Indians, every time they opened up the season, they'd have about 70, 80,000 people. Then the next day, they'd have 5,000. And it was just a huge stadium, horseshoe configuration, and just nobody there. But it was just massive. And uh, the clubhouses were terrible. You went down into the dugout and down and up these steps and into the clubhouse. And the clubhouses, you know, the ballpark was there forever. And uh, it was a great ballpark at one time, but it got very old, antiquated, and uh, it was nothing fancy. And what I remember about the ballpark is that, you know, we risked life and limb in our heads because the windows in the radio booth and some of the TV booths were these heavy metal uh, framed windows. If they were so heavy, you really had to work to put them up. And there was this bar and there was this grappling hook that you had to take and, and hook onto the window. And there was two of these windows. So Dave and I might have to pull it up. One had to get, grab that grappling hook. This is what we had to do to watch the ball game. And so these two windows, they were so heavy. I don't know how much they weighed. They had to weigh about 100 pounds each, it seemed like. I know they weren't that heavy, but it felt that way. And I just thought, you know, if for some reason, if those grappling hooks didn't hold, that thing would come down and just decapitate the both of us and our heads be rolling down the screen. <laughs> But and then there was these midges were all over the place during the summer off the lake or wherever they came from. They just but that's what I remember about Cleveland Municipal Stadium. It was huge. What about uh, Tiger Stadium in Detroit? I love Tiger Stadium. I love going there as a visiting broadcaster. Then, as you know, I tried to follow Ernie Hartwell there in 1992 and I was there for three years. I just love the history of the old ballparks. And you talk about being right on the field. We were right on the field. Because the press box, the radio booths, rather, the press boxes were way up high, but the radio booths hung underneath the press box, and we were just right above the box seats. John Miller was on in season one of the podcast, episode six, and he was talking about being so close yeah. to the field that he could hear conversations between oh, the umpire yeah. and the catcher or the umpire oh, yeah. and the manager. And and all the bad words that Kirk Gibson said when he struck out and uh, other <laughs> players. But we were right there. We're about maybe 60 feet away from behind home plate. I used to warm up Bill Roof, who was our coach. I'd be up in the booth and, and Roofy would throw me a ball. I would throw it back to him down on the field and he'd throw it back up to the booth. That's how close we were. And then when I became the announcer for the Tigers, Kirk Gibson was one of the greatest players I've ever seen. Uh, so passionate, played the game hard, played the game the right way. But he would always get a little excited and sometimes upset after he struck out. And he would throw out an F-bomb that would go out all over the ballpark. And I would tell our engineer, Howard Stitzel, I said, Howard, be ready to strike San Gibby. If he strikes out, pop down that crown mic. <laughs> but it didn't matter because if he struck out and threw out an F-bomb, we could still hear it over our microphones, you know, in the booth. So uh, I talked really loud if he struck out, but he didn't strike out very often. And 
he was just one of the best players I've ever seen and one of the greatest guys I've ever been around. And I wish they could have done something to preserve even part of Tiger Stadium because it's such a historic ballpark. You think about all of the great players who were there uh, and to not have anything left. Really, I mean, I guess yeah. that the, the, the Police Athletic League in Detroit built a field on the you know, the footprint and the flagpole is still there. But I mean, really, there, there's more that I wish could have been done. Yeah, it was a, it was a great park. I loved it. You know, and what was unique about it was it was so far in straightaway center field. It was like 440 feet to that flagpole in straightaway center field. But then in right field, you had it wasn't all that deep, but you had the overhang of the upper deck that came all the way out to the front part of the warning track. So a lot of times there'd be a routine fly ball to right field. Many times I'd see our right fielder, Al Cowens, who was with the Mariners at the time, go back and look up and the ball would just drop into that uh, upper deck that extended out over the one he tried and it was a home run, you know, but I also saw Kirk Gibson hit the ball out of the ballpark to right field too. But uh, it had so much history there, knowing that Ty Cobb played there, Al Kaline, then Alan Trammell and and Kirk Gibson and all those guys and Sparky Anderson. Sparky was so good to me. So was Alan Trammell when I was there for three years. But I love that old ballpark for so many reasons. What about County Stadium in Milwaukee? County Stadium in Milwaukee uh, was a great old ballpark. It was wide open in straightaway center field. Then they had the bleachers in left, the bleachers in right field. Then they had this little opening down the left field line. And I'll never forget one day when I was with the Tigers, Cecil Fielder hit a home run completely out of the ballpark. It went right past the bleachers that curved around toward the left field line. Then there was the opening where the buses were parked to leave after the ball game, and then the bleachers in left field. It was a great old park. And back in the day when the Milwaukee Braves moved there from Boston, they were out drawing everybody in the National League. Uh, of course, they had Hank Aaron, you know, and Lou Burdett, Warren Spahn, and Joe Adcock, and all those great players. And that kind of helped out too. But uh, the, the press boxes were interesting because there was uh, a ramp in front of the press boxes where we would tape our shows, our pregame shows on television and everything. And then Bob Euchre, his radio booth was right there. And sometimes he'd stick his head out and make a funny comment, of course, because he was the funniest guy ever <laughs> in the history of the game of baseball. But it was just a family. Everybody knew one another. Everybody loved one another. And that, that's what I remember about Old County Stadium in Milwaukee. In 1995, the Mariners season came down to a one-game playoff with the Angels for the division title at the Kingdom. As you recall, tight until the bottom of the seventh inning, and you, Rick, had one of the great, one of the truly, truly great all-time calls at the bottom of the seventh. What do you remember about that moment? Well, what I remember was the bases were loaded, Flowers, Tino, Joey, and we're in third, second, and first, and Vince Coleman came up before Luis Soho. And Vince had a really long at-bat against Mark Langston. He had a long battle. And he had a line drive in the right field. And Tim Salmon came running in and fell to his knees and made the catch. And, of course, Blowers couldn't score because he didn't know if the ball was going to drop in for a base hit or if Salmon was going to make the catch, which he eventually did. So Mike had no chance to score. I remember seeing Vince Coleman not too happy about not driving in a run. But then in the very next pitch, here comes Luis Soho. Swing and a ground ball, sneaks up by Snow. Down the right field. And in one play, in one swing by Luis Soho, he broke his bat on that swing. And somehow the ball down that first baseline got on by JT Snow. He was a great defensive first baseman and got down that right field line. And then Langston was involved. He, he got toward the line 
thinking that he was going to have to cover first base if Snow gets the ball. And he ends up being the cutoff man. And he just fired a seed right on by Andy Allenson, who was his catcher. Everybody scored and got four runs on that one swing and ended up winning the ball game nine to one because Randy Johnson was so dominating a Hall of Fame pitcher. And uh, yeah, he was it, untouchable that night. I mean, he, he was. He, he kind of took it to a whole other level. And then, of course, clinches the AL West championship for, for yeah. the Mariners. Uh, and they're in the playoffs now for the first time in team history. And, and man, that team was special. Randy Johnson, Ken Griffey Jr., Jay Buhner, Edgar Martinez, a 19-year-old A-Rod. I think he was 19 at the time. And then they face off against the Yankees. And uh, the Mariners lose the first two games to uh, the Yankees at Yankee Stadium, including a, just a 15-inning heartbreaker in Game 2. And then on the, um, I think of the plane ride back to Seattle, the plane's now at cruising altitude. Everybody's asleep or trying to sleep, thinking about the fact that the Mariners are down two games to zero, lamenting the fact that you couldn't grab one at Yankee Stadium. But you, Rick, were awake. And so was somebody else. I'll never forget as long as I live, Mike. Game two at Yankee Stadium, as you talked about, win 15 innings, Jim Leyritz hits that home run. And I don't know what time we got out of the ballpark, one o'clock in the morning, two o'clock in the morning. It was a long night. And now I'm thinking, okay, we got to go all the way back to Seattle and win three games against this ball club. Took us forever. We finally got to the airport, finally got on the plane, took off. And somewhere over mid-America, it had to be like 4.30, 5 o'clock in the morning. It was pitch black on the plane. And I'll never forget, I had I got up. I wasn't sleepy. I should have been, but I wasn't. And I walked to the front of the plane. And that's when I turned around and looked down the aisle. And I saw somebody coming at me. And as I looked, it was Lou Pinella. And this guy had more passion than, than anybody I think I've ever met in the game of baseball. He wanted to do one thing, and that was the win for the fans in Seattle. Lou walked up to me, and I didn't say a word. He, he looked at me in the eyes and said, Ricky, we're, we're going to win this thing. And I said, Lou, we got Randy going tomorrow. Good game three. Sneak game four, get him in game five. He said, Rick, we're going to win this thing. Mike, I thought I saw flame shooting out of his eyes. And uh, sure enough, Randy Johnson was Randy and won game three. Edgar Martinez won game four. Everybody remembers the double in game five to, to clinch the division series against the Yankees. But he won game four with two home runs, including a grand slam. The Mariners were down early after three innings, five to nothing. When Edgar hit a three-run home run in the bottom of the third, he got us right back in the ball game. And the Mariners felt, okay, we've been doing this all season long. There were signs refused to lose in the kingdom, uh, two outs, so what, uh, with two strikes on a hitter. When Randy Johnson was pitching, everybody would get on their feet. They never, ever gave up. And the game was tied around the seventh inning when Edgar hit a grand slam home run. I could still see it hit off that blue tarp behind the wall in center field, the rippling of the ball hitting that tarp, and the Mariners ended up winning that ball game 11-8 to to tie the series, and then along came game five. Once again, another do-or-die situation for the Mariners. The winner moves on to the American League Championship Series. And it was just a great battle. Andy Bennett started for the Mariners, and David Cohn was a warrior. He threw about 157 pitches, you know, in nine innings and came out of the ball game. He told me years later, when he was broadcasting for the Yankees, and he said he was pitching with a blood clot in his shoulder that night. He didn't know it. But uh, the game was tight after nine innings when Randy Johnson came in in relief. So the big unit on in relief for the third time in his career. He came in like a rock star. Yeah, he did. You know, for that bullpen down the left field line, Jack McDowell came in in relief in the ninth inning. And these two guys just pitched in game two. 
you know, of the division series. And so uh, here they are in relief now. The Yankees get a run off of Randy in the top of the 11th inning. Randy Velarde gets a base hit. It's a score run, 5-4 Yankees. This has been one incredible story. Fans will never forget this series. And then in the bottom of the 11th inning, little Joey Cora gets a bunt base hit along the first baseline. Don Manley got to it, dove to his left, and missed Joey. I asked Donnie a long time after that, and I said, what happened on that play? He says, I had him. I just couldn't get the tag on him, and he was safe. He gets into first base with a dive, and the Mariners have the winning run at the plate in junior. Two pitches later, Junior hits a ground ball base hit up the middle. Swung on and a ground ball base hit in the right center field. Gore's going to end up at third, and the Mariners have runners at first and third, and nobody out here in the bottom half of the 11th. My, oh, my. No quit. No quit. No quit in this ball club all season long. And here comes Edgar. Edgar takes a fastball, you know, for a strike, and I'm thinking, Poppy, what's going on? Dave Niehaus is doing the play-by-play. It's the bottom of the 11th inning. And in the ninth inning, McDowell struck out Edgar on a forkball, on a splitter. And he remembered that. And this is the beauty and the brilliance of Edgar Martinez. He was waiting for that forkball again, that splitter. And sure enough, on the next pitch, McDowell hung the splitter. And the 0-1 pitch on the way to Edgar Martinez. Swung on the line, down the left field line for a base hit. Here comes Joy. Here is Junior at third base. They're going to wave him in. The throw to the plate will be late. The Mariners are going to play for the American League Championship. I don't believe it. It just continues. My, oh, my. It was the fastest I've ever seen Junior run in all my life. And Sammy Palazzo is waving him in. And and Junior scores, and the Mariners win, and Edgar's double. Dave Niehaus had the greatest call in the history of our franchise. And then I waited for Dave to finish. He had the greatest call in the world. And I said, Dave, pandemonium here in the kingdom. This is a game for the ages, blah, blah, blah. And it was just an amazing moment. But another interesting thing happened on that play, and here's the brilliance of Ken Griffey Jr., who was on at first base. He knew that if the ball was in the gap, he was going to score. And he knew that if the ball got into that left field corner, he had a chance to score because he said it was soft down there. The ball wouldn't come back. And I think Gerald Williams was playing left field. And sure enough, Edgar's double went down that left field line and hit up against that wall. And Junior knew it. He just came flying around. The relay came into Tony Fernandez. The throw by Tony DeLayritz was late. But Junior... Ian Jr. knew that. He was one of the smartest players ever put on a uniform, the greatest player I've ever seen play, by the way, and scored on that base hit by Edgar Martinez, which saved baseball in the Pacific Northwest. That team, by doing what they did, when they did, and how they did it in 1995, saved Major League Baseball in Seattle. But all those things came into place, and it was great to relive that moment. Thank you. What was your favorite Ken Griffey Jr. call that you were behind the mic for? Wow. Wow, Mike, there were just... So many, the home runs, the catch out in left center field in Yankee Stadium. Fly ball into deep left center field. Griffey going back to the warning track, leaps high in the air, and he's got it! An incredible catch by the kid! He takes away a home run from Jesse Barfield, climbing the wall in left center field in Death Valley here at Yankee Stadium. Look at Barfield, he's stunned. He's standing there with his hands on his head. I don't believe it! Jesse Barfield had already hit two home runs in the ball game, and he hit what was going to be a third, and it was out in left center field, 399. That's Death Valley. And Junior, with a full head of steam, racing back into left center field, got his right foot 
uh, the padding of the wall reached high in the air, and he made this phenomenal catch, superhuman catch, flying over the wall, and brought it back and held his glove up high. You could see the white of the ball cut sticking out of the webbing of his glove. He had this huge smile on his face, laughing as he came in, and it was one of the greatest uh, catches I've ever seen. And Major League Baseball, if you recall, had this fabulous promo. And it was like all these statues of great players making great players on monuments of like Mount Rushmore, you know, each individual guy, Johnny Bench and Brooks Robinson. One of them was Junior scaling this huge mountaintop, making this catch with the call behind it. And I was so proud that they used that call and that play on that promo by the Major League Baseball Network. But that's the one that really stood out for me. But he said, his best catch was happened at old Tiger Stadium in Detroit. We had to go over the wall in right center field, over that chain link, hard metal wall, reach into the stands and make a catch because you didn't know if it was going to hit that overhang or not. But he made so many great catches. The Willie Mays catch in you know, the World Series, one of the greatest catches of all time. I saw Junior do that 50 times. Running back, there's that number 24 and making the catch over his shoulder like that, spinning around, getting the throw in. Uh, he did that very, very often. But that's the if I had to pick one that, that I had the chance to call, that would be that catch by Junior. And the reaction of Jesse Barfield was so similar. If you play it next to the reaction of Joe DiMaggio in the World Series. Oh, right. In 1947, when Al John Frito robbed him of a home run. Yeah. You know, it was exactly the same. He put his hands on his hips and kind of kicked to the dirt and just shrugged his shoulders and looked at Junior and go, I don't believe you just made that catch. Right. <laughs> and if you look at DiMaggio in that World Series against Brooklyn, uh, uh, it was it was the same reaction. Do you remember the name from Mariners past, Tom Lampkin? Tom, I think, was 15 years old and worked as a clubhouse assistant at the Kingdome, went undrafted out of high school, ended up going to a local community college and eventually made it to the big leagues. Does that name ring a bell, Tom Lampkin? Tom's one of my best buddies in the world. Are you kidding me? Yeah, he's he really? up here. Oh, yeah. And uh, he was an outstanding backup catcher to Danny Wilson. Danny was, you know, the backbone of our ball club. We had the great stars in 1995. Randy Johnson, Ken Griffey Jr., Edgar Martinez, Jay Buhner, Tino Martinez, Mike Blowers. But Dan Wilson was the backbone of that team. But uh, Tom Lampkin was a heck of a backup catcher. He, at 15, was a clubhouse assistant at the Kingdom. Yeah. And then at some point, he's playing in the Kingdom. Yeah. As he got older, you know, he got pretty good, you know, growing up in in Seattle and got into professional baseball. And uh, I think he came up with Cleveland. I have to check it out. With I think so. And then went over to the San Diego Padres. And then we got him. We got him here. And Tom was just one of the nicest guys you'll ever want to meet. Beautiful family. And he was uh, just great guy to have on that baseball team. And when he got in there, he played great defense and, uh, you know, could hit. He could pop a few home runs as well, but he was a great teammate. For folks who don't remember, Safeco uh, did not open until I think July of 99. July so 15th. for the first, yeah. So for the first couple months, you're still playing at the Kingdom. So he, mm-hmm. and that's what he came over in 99. So he actually had a chance to see some of the guys that he worked in the clubhouse with. But now he's a player wearing a uniform. I just think that's so great. No, it was a, it was a heck of a story, you know. Not too many guys, you know, started off as a clubhouse guy and then ended up playing for that baseball team, you know, in the big leagues and in your hometown. So it's a, it's a great story. Ron Santo grew up in Seattle, went to Franklin High School, and he worked in the clubhouse at Old Six Stadium. The home field for the one-season Seattle Pilots, right? Yeah. 
And uh, of course, he became, he was not drafted, but he got signed by the Chicago Cubs and uh, became one of the greatest third basemen in history. But that's how he got his start, too, working at the clubhouse at Old Six Stadium. So Tom Lampkin went from tarp to top, from the clubhouse kid to a, a big league ball player against the Mariners and playing for the Mariners. It was a great story and still lives here in the Pacific Northwest. So I'll get you out of here on this, Rick. Uh, for many years, as you mentioned before, many years you worked in the booth with Dave Niehaus, who had uh-huh. been with the team since its inception and called more than 5,000 Mariners games before his passing in 2010. What made Dave so special, so beloved? What made Dave so special was he was one of the greatest storytellers of all time. And I think we lost sight of that. I love telling stories. and I hope that a lot of the young broadcasters go back to that. I think too much is baseball analytics on, on the radio and on television, where I think it's more important to tell stories of these guys so the fans get to know who they are. And in, in baseball, we play 162 games, and the fans have a chance to really get to know these people through us, for us getting to know the players, the manager, the coaching staff, to tell their stories. And then they become more of a, a part of their families. And that's what Dave was so great at, was telling stories. And he grew up listening to Harry Carey and Ernie Harwell and all the great announcers back in the day. And he had that, oh, that beautiful voice. Here comes the left-handers wide. The 0-2 pitch on the way. Swag, it's over! He's done it! High fastball, Randy Johnson being mobbed by Scott Bradley down to greet him and the entire Mariner team here on the 2nd of June. It ends at 9.51 Pacific Daylight Time. Randy Johnson with the first Mariner no-hitter in history. And uh, he made it fun listening on the radio. For many years, we had some lean seasons in Seattle. But the one thing Mariner fans had was Dave Niehaus. And I got there in 1983, six years after the franchise started. And I realized right away how precious this guy was, how great he was. He's in the Hall of Fame. So that's all you, you need to know. He went in in 2008, two years before he passed away. Thank goodness he got in before he passed away. But he's so connected with the fans that uh, they just love the man. And rightly so. And he was there for 34 years. And I remember one broadcast in 1983. when. The Mariners were way up or way down. I didn't know that. But if the Mariners were down by 10, he opened up his scorebook. He had this huge scorebook. And I used the same one, too. And he pulled out the sheet music. And he started singing the Wabash Cannonball. Here's a guy from Princeton, Indiana, same hometown as Gil Hodges. And he started singing this song. And I, what is this guy doing? Oh, listen to the jingle, the rumble, and the roar. As she glides along the woodlands, and we watch the ball fly into the left center field gap for a base hit. He said, Rick, he says, anytime the Mariners are down by 10 or up by 10, I'm going to sing the Wabash Cannonball. And got away with it. And then one day, you know, his home run call was fly, fly, fly away. And of course, my oh my became synonymous with Dave and with Mariners baseball. But one day in 1995, Tino Martinez is up at home play with the bases loaded. And it's a long fly ball to right center field, and it's going to go out of the ballpark. But instead of going here, and it will fly, fly away, all of a sudden I hear, Grandma, get out the rye bread and mustard. It is grand salami time. And I leaned back, and I looked at Kevin Kremen, who sat on the other side of Dave, and go, what was that? You know, but it was radio gold, you know. And anytime a guy hit a grand slam home run, it was a grand salami. And the fans just loved it. They loved Dave. 
he was so passionate on the radio. He was a fan in front of the microphone. He was also really honest too. You know, he could just say what he thought, you know, during the course of a broadcast and got a lot of respect for that as well. But he was just so much fun to listen to. One of the greatest lessons he ever taught me, Mike, was that just because it may be a bad game, it doesn't have to be a bad broadcast. And we would banter back. We would have fun. And at the end of the ball game, no matter what the score was, I think we entertained the fans. And they just fell in love with Dave, as I did. And uh, I miss him so much. Without him, I wouldn't be here. He got me as a young broadcaster to the big leagues. I left nine years later in 1992 to go to Detroit. Didn't work out there. And after three years there, before they let me go, I called Dave. He said, we'll get you back. And he kept his promise. He got me back. And thank God. Uh, and for Dave Niehaus, I didn't miss the 1995 season. So I've been there now. 37 years, 40 in the big leagues, three with the Detroit Tigers. And I owe everything to Dave Niehaus. What a great tribute to to one of the great broadcasters of all time, as are you. And, I, and I'm hopeful that at some point in the next few years, you will also get the call to Cooperstown. And it is just a, an honor and a privilege to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much, Rick. Mike, I enjoyed every second of it. I love talking about baseball and the history of the Mariners and the great ballparks, the, the great tabernacles that we, we play our game in. It's really theater. You know, these ballparks are theaters. They're great stages like any other theater that you go to. Uh, and it, it's so connected. In baseball, we have players in the theater. You have the actors and ingrained in our history. And it's just, I'm so privileged to be a part of this for 48 years, eight years in the minor leagues, 40 in the big leagues to be doing what I'm doing. And uh, I'm so blessed. So it's great to be on your program. Let's keep those stories alive of the old ballparks and make new memories in the new ballparks. And uh, baseball is going to be in great shape forever. So we are now... I think, if I've got this correct, some 50 episodes into this podcast. And honestly, I've enjoyed every one of these conversations, but there are certainly a handful that stand out among my favorites. And this one with Rick Riz is definitely on that list. Like his longtime partner, Dave Niehaus, Rick is a tremendous storyteller. And more than that, you talk to anyone who knows him, anyone who spent any amount of time around Rick Riz, and they will tell you that he's just a really good guy. So kind and generous with his time and energy. Hey, I want to thank Rodney Ben who's a great friend of the show for suggesting that we have Rick on the podcast. The Lost Ballparks podcast is produced by Ryan Beard, Mike Dunn, John Carter, Alex Kemp, Xavier Guerra, Mike Lipinski, Manny Zavlakis, Kyle Schmidt, Riggs Buckingham, and Brian Bigard. Thanks again for listening. Looking forward to being back with you next week for another episode of the Lost Ballparks podcast.